This is the Sermon Podcast of Lord of Life Lutheran Church. A quick announcement about our upcoming worship times. Through November 10th, we will continue with our existing worship schedule of 8 a.m., 9 a.m., and 11.15 a.m. On Sunday, November 17th, we will have one worship at 10 a.m., followed by our annual meeting of the congregation. From Sunday, November 24th onward, we will have two worships at 9 a.m. and 11.15 a.m. We invite you to join us. Find out more about our community at www.acceptingall.com. And now, an installment in our four-part Vision 2020 sermon arc. The first reading is from the third chapter of Ezra. In the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jodazak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their people, the priests and the Levites, and all who came to Jerusalem from their captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to have the oversight of the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his kin, and Cadmiel and his son, Binui, and Hodaviah, along with the sons of Henadad, the Levites, their sons and kin, together took charge of the workers in the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments were stationed to praise the Lord with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people responded with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and head of families old people who had seen the first house on its foundation wept with a loud voice when they saw this house, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people weeping, for the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard far away. Holy wisdom, holy word. The second reading is from Revelations. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Holy wisdom, holy word. The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 12th chapter. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. 
They have neither storehouses nor barns, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do so small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying, for it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, and the Father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, our theme for the first Sunday of this 2020 vision campaign is see the change. Certainly, Martin Luther saw a change going on when he got up and nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. He nailed them up there in response to what he saw as abuses of the practices of the Catholic Church in response to corruption. And certainly wherever there is wealth and power, corruption will pool. And in Martin Luther's time, the Catholic Church was indeed wealthy and powerful and in some ways corrupt. Martin Luther wasn't the first one to point this out, neither would he be the last. If it hadn't been him, it would have been someone else And indeed, before him, John Huss had said very nearly the same things that Martin Luther was saying. Back then, he had ended up being burned as a heretic. Only this time, when Martin Luther spoke out, the world had changed. Perhaps more important than the corruption that Martin Luther was addressing was the change that was taking place that would come to be known as the Renaissance. And one of the important things that fueled this Renaissance was the fall of the eastern portion of the Roman Empire. When the eastern portion of the empire fell, and the capital of that eastern portion, Constantinople, fell, 
the scholars from there fled westward and brought with them these ancient texts from the east in those eastern languages of Greek and Hebrew. And they brought them with them to the west whose chief language was Latin. And what happened was that for the first time in a long time, scholars were able to compare their Latin translation of the Bible with these ancient Greek and Hebrew documents. And what it revealed was some troubling mistranslations. One of the most telling for Martin Luther was where the Latin said penitentium agate, which meant do penance. The original Greek read menitoite, which meant turn around, repent. A change of being rather than something one had to do. The problem was that this whole penitential system was undergird by this Latin translation. And the Catholic Church brought a lot of money in based on that penitential system. This together with other things Well, and one of the most significant was a rise in nationalism, which meant that people increasingly began to view themselves as German or English or French or Dutch and began to ask the question, well, why should Germany and their faith be led by someone in Italy? Why should the Uh, contributions from France and from England be used to build cathedrals in Rome. And so when Martin Luther started asking questions, they pointed to him and said, yeah, what he said. And the next thing you knew, the fuse was lit. And the groundwork was laid for the Protestant Reformation. The problem wasn't so much that the world was changing as indeed it was. The problem was recognizing that the change was happening and responding to it. I believe that now we are going through a period no less significant than that Protestant Reformation and no less upsetting in many ways for the church. Since the 1960, mainline denominations have been shrinking. Leaders and congregations have been getting older. And we could talk all morning about why that is happening, and indeed, people have talked forever and ever about why this is happening. Some say, well, you know, Sundays no longer have a special place in society. The church no longer has a privileged position. The church has failed to reach out to minorities. The church has failed to attract younger members. The church has blah, 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 fill in the blank. But it is 
what it is such that increasingly it is becoming harder and harder to exist as the institutional church. Such that as of now there's something, I'm thinking like 35 or 40 churches in our synod that are looking for pastors. And the synod received this year just two new candidates. It's clear to see that this is not sustainable. The vast majority of calls now serve two or three congregations at the same time. And studies show that within 10 years, perhaps fully 40% of our smaller congregations will close their doors. 40%. If this sounds depressing, believe me, I understand. It was depressing for the church. It was worrisome for the church back in Martin Luther's day. And the way that they responded was not horribly helpful. They wrung their hands, they worried, and then they doubled down on church authority. In essence, saying, darn it, the Bible says whatever we says it says. But the world was no longer in any mood to grant blind obedience. And the church fractured. So now, what do we do? How do we respond in times of great change? How can we be disciples when the world keeps moving on us, when the target keeps changing? Well, to begin with, Martin Luther responded the same way that the Catholic Church did. He wrung his hands, he worried, and he doubled down. Figured the problem must be that he's not doing things hard enough. He's not doing things well enough. And so he prayed more, he confessed more, he did penance more. And when none of that helped, when none of that helped him address his faith in this new world, he went back to scripture. And in studying scripture, discovered a new faith for a new world. And as in Ezra's time, that new faith for a new world was received with both weeping and with joy, weeping over what was lost, church unity, and joy for the new thing that was coming into being, for a faith that was more primal, more connected to that original spirit that had first sent the church out. The problem, well, the one thing we know from history that doesn't work in responding to change is wringing our hands, worrying, and doubling down. 
Because the good news and the thing I want you to hear very, very, very clearly this morning is the church is not dying. The church is not dying. Only the church as we know it. The Holy Spirit that is transforming all things perhaps is calling us to be transformed as well. And again, the problem isn't that the world is changing. It is. The problem is just if we don't see it. Or if seeing it, we fail to respond to it. Because one of the things that is clear about Christianity is that it has always been a religion of change. From the minute that the women showed up at the empty tomb and discovered nobody in it, it was clear that something had changed. And the very first thing that happened in response to that is that Jesus helped them reinterpret the scriptures. He helped them listen again to what those scriptures had to say to them. He met the disciples on the road to Emmaus and opened their eyes and ears to hear what scripture was saying to them now in light of this change. Paul would go out with a new understanding of scripture and a new understanding of what it meant to be the people of God. A new understanding that embraced not just Jews but Gentiles as well. The author of the letter to the Hebrews would reinterpret his own understanding of who the Messiah was and what it meant to be our great high priest. Finding one whose one soul sacrifice was enough for all people. Christianity has always been about change precisely because we don't know what's going to happen. We know that we are heading for the reign of God, but we don't yet know exactly what that's going to be like or how we get there. All we know is that it looks a lot different from where we are now. Therefore, in order to get from here to there, there has to be change. And so we are, by definition, changing day after day after day after day. And we are called to become different disciples day after day after day. A friend of mine and I get together every so often to just spend a day walking around and talking. And we've, we've noted the difference between walking and what we call moseying. Walking is when you know where you're going and, and, and you head there. Moseying is when every time you pick up your foot, you're not exactly sure which way it's going to turn this time. And so we never quite know where we're going to end up on these walks. We are moseying. Every time we pick up our foot to put it down, it is the beginning of a new journey. Or if you prefer the old saying, each day is indeed the beginning of the rest of our life, the rest of our eternal life. But we don't know exactly where that step will take us. 
The one thing we know we can't do is stay where we are. Part of embracing our identity as threshold people, as, as nomadic people, as exodus people, is also embracing that comfort doesn't mean standing still. Lutherans tend to take comfort in thinking, you know, if we just keep doing things the way we've always done them, everything will be fine. But our true identity should also be our comfort in knowing that each new day will bring us to new territory, will be the beginning of a new journey and a new life. But the one who calls us to that change is the one who is going out ahead of us. We can't stay in the tomb. We've been called to get up and be resurrected as well and to follow wherever it is he goes. One of the things that we are doing this morning is we are having our uh, affirmation contract, covenant which is just one more way we recognize that, that we have to learn as we move forward. We have to change as we move forward. And this journey for us begins at that baptismal font where we are told we die. Where we are told we are buried with Christ so that we can be resurrected with Christ. we are being resurrected again today. And as disciples of Christ, we will have to figure out what it means to be disciples in this new world where things are done differently. This church has had a wonderful history of seeing change, of seeing the difference and responding to it. By the grace of God, we will continue to see that change and continue to have the courage to take that next step, trusting in the one who has gone before us. Amen.